If you turn this morning to the 10th chapter of the book of Romans, beginning of verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart designed my prayer to God for Israel, as that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, and being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. I would suggest that you underscore, Paul says, that his heart's desire was that Israel might be saved. The book of Romans is a missionary book. It is a book written by a missionary to the place of Rome. And if you'll study the book, you'll find that you don't know too much about the book until you come down to the end of it. The book of Romans is a book that deals with unity, and it deals with the missionary spirit of the Apostle Paul. You come down to the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, and you find that Paul's preached the gospel where at Iconium, and that he's covered the whole region. He says, I fully preached the gospel of Christ, Romans 15 and verse 19. He's going to go on his way, to Jerusalem to carry the contribution of the saints and that to try to bridge the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles and the church of our Lord to create that spirit of oneness, that spirit of unity, that spirit of feeling that should admit, should exist among brethren. And then he's going to go through Rome on his way to Spain. It's my judgment that Paul was going to use Rome somewhat in the way that he did Antioch. And from there he was, had planned to go out on his missionary journeys. You'll recall that what Paul had in mind was not what took place. Paul went to Rome, all right, but he didn't go to Rome on his way through Spain. He went to Rome, and when the book of Acts closes, you'll find him in a prison cell and in his own hired house. He's able to preach the gospel, people to come into him, but Paul not able to go out. But in Romans chapter 15, he said in verse 24, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come unto you, for I trust to see you in my journey, that you might be brought on my way thither by you, that I might be somewhat filled with your company. He says in verse 28, When therefore I perform this, and have sealed this fruit, I will come by you unto Spain. Paul had a great desire to go to Rome. The church at Rome was in the mind of the Apostle Paul. And I think in the church at Rome and in the Roman letter, there set forth some points of strength that contribute to the growth of the church. Paul was missionary-minded. And I think there is set forth in the Roman letter some points of strength that contribute to a missionary mind. Look at the great compliment that he pays here in Romans 15 to the church at Rome. In verse 14, I myself am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you're filled with all goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. And then he says, nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly unto you in this Sword is putting in your mind because the grace given unto me that I should be a minister of Christ unto the Gentiles, 
ministering of the gospel of God, the offering up of the Gentiles, might be acceptable as is sanctified by the Holy Ghost. And so Paul paid them a great compliment. Here were people who had the right attitude and the right kind of spirit. I want to go back this morning to the first chapter of the book of Romans and suggest from that chapter some things that are points of strength that contribute to the growth of the church. And these things are characteristic both of the life of the Apostle Paul and the lives of those brethren at Rome. And I think that they must be characteristic of our lives today if we're going to have the kind of strength that we ought to have. And if we're going to make a contribution individually to the growth of the body of Christ and the church of the living God. In the first place, he begins by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. You know, the words that are placed in Holy Writ are not selected by accident, but they're placed there through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it might seem strange when I say that an element of strength is service or to be a servant. That seems as it, if it were a contradiction of things, really. The word servant, as it's used in Romans 1.1, is from the Greek word which means bond slave. And Paul's saying that he was a bond slave. How could it be an element of strength for one to be a bond slave? That seems to be a contradiction within itself. Not only that, at the time that Paul wrote this letter, there were those who bought and sold slaves. And to say slave was to say an ugly word. It was simply to say that here's one who is lowly. Here's one whom you really wouldn't even want to associate with. They'd put them on the block and they would sell them. They would barter them one for another. Sometimes they'd even give them away. And they had no real consideration for those who were slaves. But I think it shows how that the gospel of Christ can take that which is ugly and change it under that which is beautiful. And the very attitude that we have toward our service today will determine the strength of the church. Do we have an ugly attitude toward you? Do we really not want to be a servant of Jesus Christ? Do we look as being a servant as being something lowly, something to be avoided? Or do we look that being a servant is something that we enjoy and something that we look forward to. Paul said he was a servant. If you'll look back at Matthew chapter 20, at Matthew chapter 23, at Mark chapter 10, at Luke chapter 21, you'll find that all of these chapters point to the fact that Christianity takes service and it makes it something that the world does not know. The world looks for position. It looks for strength in, in a place. And yet in Christianity, service is where real strength is found. If we're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13 says in verses 10 through 12, it'll be by the service that we render. How can that be? Well, you find that Christianity takes service and it places it on a different level. For instance, if you turn to the 8th chapter of the book of John, you'll find that our Lord talks about servants. And he says in verse 31 beginning, in verse 32, 
Then Jesus said unto those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then they answered and said, We be Abraham's seed. We never were in bondage unto any man. These people saw service as being in bondage. And yet Jesus said, When you're serving the Lord, you're free indeed. And that service is in the form of liberty. If you turn to the 15th chapter of the book of John, you find in verse 15, Jesus said, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I call you friends. For all the things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Can you see from these two passages how that Jesus takes lowly service and puts it on a different level? Service is placed on the level of friendship and kinship. Because of the fact that we are a friend of the Master, we serve. And that makes service different from the kind of bond service that was rendered by a slave, though we are slaves to Christ. How is service on a different level? It's voluntary. That's how. We don't serve because we are constrained to serve. We serve out of liberty. We serve voluntarily. We serve the Lord because I want to. The story was told concerning a young man who had come back from Vietnam. He'd lost his arm in service. And he was introduced to speak to a group of veterans, and the man got up to introduce him, and he says, Here's John, or whatever his name was. And he says, John lost his arm in the war. We ought to admire him for what he's done. John got up and he said, I didn't lose it. I gave it. Now that takes it and puts it on a different level. It wasn't the fact that he lost it, he gave it. There was a young lady that had lost her eyesight, but she lost it to save her brother's life. She didn't lose it. She gave it. That's Christian service. We serve not because we're constrained to serve, not because we have to serve, but I want to serve. I desire to serve. And that's what Paul says. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He volunteered for action. His service was because that was the depth of the desire of his heart that he wanted to serve. And until Christianity comes to mean that to me, I'll be weak and I'll always have to be compelled to do the will of the Lord. In the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, he comments on this in verse 1. And he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed according to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you might prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. What's Paul saying? He's saying that Christianity means I have been crucified and I've presented myself unto the Lord. I've volunteered and I've given myself unto the Lord a living sacrifice. Do you know that that's what it means when you're baptized into Christ for the mission of your sins? 
You're dead to sin, but you're alive to Jesus Christ. And you've presented yourself as it were to Him. Here I am, send me, Isaiah 6 and verse 8. That's the attitude of a son of God. It takes that which is ugly, service, and it places on a different level. It places it on the level of volunteer service. I give. Not that which has been taken, not that which is constrained, but this I willingly do because I first given myself unto the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 5. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The Lord gave Himself voluntarily. He laid His life down of Himself. That's what Christians do. We must have that element of strength if we grow. That was the missionary attitude of the Apostle Paul. That was the attitude of the brethren that were at Rome. They were willing to serve. They volunteered for service. Secondly, not only must there be service, there must be separation, and it's an element of strength. Paul said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separate under the, or separated under the gospel of Christ. If you'll drop down a few verses, you'll find in verse 7, he said to all that are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. There's no different from the word separated and saint in verse 7 from one standpoint. Here are those who have been set apart. The word separated means to make bounds and to be within those bounds, and that's what Paul was. He was separated. He was within the bounds of the gospel, separated by the gospel of Christ. Called to be saints. Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14 says that we are called by the gospel. That's the way these were called. They were called saints. The word to be is in attached. The word saint means separated from, set apart from, set apart to. And that's what Christianity is all about. Philippians 3.20 says that we're God's colony here on earth. In 1 Peter 1, he says, Be ye holy as I am holy, saith the Lord. God's people are set apart. They are separated. They are sanctified. They are different. They are set apart from the world, but they are set apart to do God's service. Now I think sometimes what happens is we're halfway as far as saints are concerned. We've let the Catholics run us away from using the word saints to begin with. Christians are called saints more in the Bible than they are by any other term. What does it mean? It means that we have come out from the world and that we've been translated to the kingdom of His own dear Son, Colossians 1 and verse 13, that we've been set apart from and set apart to serve. We've been consecrated to service. And so when Paul said that he had been separated, he was separated as a servant, separated to serve in the kingdom of God. Look at his comment in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. In verse 8, nine, or verse 9 rather, Paul says concerning this, let love be without dissimulation, that is, let love be without play acting, without hypocrisy, 
Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. They're set apart to and set apart from. That's what it means to be a saint. You abhor evil. You don't practice evil, but you cleave unto that which is good. Now, you can't come over here and abhor evil and cleave to that which is good and have any strength. If you leave out cleaving to that which is good, you've only got the job half done. You abhor evil, but you cleave to that which is good. I won't take the time to read them this morning, but if you'll turn to Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, you find that there are some things that a Christian's to take off and there are some things that he's to put on. You take off and you put on. If you take off, you've just got the job half done. There are some things you've got to put on. And the truth of the matter is, if you don't put these on, the first thing you'll know, you'll have these back on. And that's the real danger. If you look at the 11th chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus, in recognition of the fact that if we don't put on what we take off, he says, beginning with verse 23, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, findeth none, and he saith, I return to the house which I came out. And he cometh, and he findeth it swept and garnished, and he goeth in, and taketh unto him seven spirits more wicked than himself, and he entereth in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Now turn to Second Peter chapter 2 and see what Peter says about the man who backslides. He said the last state's worse than the first. Why? Well, one thing, he's self-deceived. But what he's saying is that if we don't put on the good works and we take off the evil works, we've only got the job half done. Saint means that we're set apart and we're consecrated to the service of God and that we serve in the kingdom of God. But not only that, I want you to look again at Romans 1. Paul says in the first chapter of the book of Romans in the third place that our faith must be what it ought to be. It's an element of strength. He says concerning the brethren that were at Rome that your faith is proclaimed or is spoken of through the whole world. And so here's their face spoken of. Here are individuals who not only have studied God's Word, they live it. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's not enough to know the will of God, but we must put it in action. And our lives must be a life of trust and obedience. We trust God. And we obey God. We walk in His ways. The brethren that were at Rome could be a strong point from which the gospel could spread through the whole world because their faith was strong. And we'll never be any stronger in our faith, and our faith will never be any stronger in our knowledge of the Word of God. There's no way we can be strong Christians unless we know the book. We've got to know what the book says. But not only that, there are some little things that are found in this chapter that contribute to the strength of the church, and we sometimes overlook them. Look at what he says in verse 7. To all which be in Rome, beloved of God, call to be saints. Now that little word is small, and yet it's very vital and very large. To all. To all. In the first place, the word denotes unity. 
The theme of the book of Romans has to do with unity. In Romans 16, 16, he said, Salute one another with the holy kiss, churches of Christ salute you. And he didn't put that in there, simply where we could get the name of the Lord's church. It has to do with unity. Sure, that gives us the name of the Lord's church. And yet he's talking about the unity that must be present among the brethren. To all, that means that this congregation is not divided. The letter's not written to a section of the congregation but it includes every one of them, and they all stand on an equal basis before God. All of them were called saints, called by the gospel, separated from and separated to. There's no one who can elude this responsibility. But it belongs to every one who's a member of the body of Christ. In First Timothy, the fifth chapter, the apostle Paul wrote to the young preacher, and he says, do all things without partiality. Chapter 5, verse 21. Why? Because all Christians are united. They'd be brethren. They stand on an equal plane. They stand on an equal footing before God. In the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts that these brethren had. That is, as far as we're concerned, the use of our different talents and our abilities and he said, the one that you consider to be feeble, the one you consider to be less important, the one you'd try to overlook, is necessary too. And that all are children of God. And he says, there are many members, but one body. And there's the strength of the church. The church is no weaker than the weakest member of the body of Christ. The strength of the church of our Lord depends on all, and there's not a one who can say, I don't have any responsibility as far as that strength is concerned. We're all responsible for the strength of this congregation, every one of us. Everyone who is a called saint here at Park Avenue is responsible for the strength of Park Avenue. And there's no way that we can elude that responsibility. We're responsible for the missionary attitude that we have. We're responsible for the caring of the gospel of the world. We're responsible for the growth of the church at this congregation. And we can't elude that responsibility. We can't shove it around and pass it over to the elders and say it's their responsibility. Elders can't be elders unless members serve. It's a responsibility that belongs to all of us. The preacher can't take the total responsibility of it. There's no way that preachers of the gospel can carry the gospel around to a world that's lost in our day. They couldn't do it in the first century and they can't do it today. But it's a responsibility that rests upon the shoulders of everyone. And Paul says all, and that denotes the tender ties of unity that ought to be among those who are working and serving together in the kingdom of God. Look at it when he says in verse 11, I long to see you that I might impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you might be established. Why? Here were those who were his brethren. He was concerned about their strength. He was concerned about them carrying on their responsibilities in the church of the Lord as well as he carrying on his responsibilities. That little word all ought to be underscored. We might all spend our whole time on it, but I don't have that much time. 
Then again, I want you to look at the little personal pronouns that he uses. Look down and drop down with me when he says in verse 8, First, I thank my God. Through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of Christ. Those little personal pronouns point to a great element of strength in the Lord's church. It's my personal responsibility. It belongs to me. I can't shift it. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, Paul says in verse 2, Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But he drops down in verse 5, and he says, Each man shall bear his own burden. There's some burdens that I can't shift. Oh, there's some burdens that are borne by the church of our Lord at Park Avenue, the congregation collectively. And then there's that personal burden that rests on me. And I'm responsible for the strength of the church of my Lord. And what I am will determine what the strength of this congregation will be. And the attitude of this congregation will be determined by my attitude. And I can't shift that responsibility. It's a responsibility that rests on me. And Paul said, I serve God with my spirit. Now that's what I've got to say. I serve God with my spirit. And it's my whole spirit. It can't be divided. He served God with a singleness of heart, a singleness of purpose in his life. And there's no way that I can be a strong Christian unless I can make that statement like Paul did. I serve God with my spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit. That has to do with the inner part of a man. It has to do with his attitude. It has to do with that which will come forth out of his heart. Paul served God with every fiber of his being. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things be added unto you. There's the strength of the Lord's church. It's in the spirit of the members of the body of Christ. It's in the heart of those who above everything else think about Christianity. and Their lives are lived accordingly. That's what it takes to be a strong congregation. That's what it takes to be missionary in our outlook. That's what it takes to carry the gospel around the world or members of the body of Christ that above all else they serve God with their spirit and they don't divide their affections. Their heart is one with God. Matthew 6, he uses the language of singleness of eye. James talks about a two-souled man. And this verse was a one-souled man. We read from Luke 11, Jesus said, He that gathereth not with me scatters the broad. In other words, our affections can't be divided. But first and foremost in our lives must be the church of the living God. The Lord demands that. That's what faith demands. And there can be not anything less than that given of us. I allow you to believe you can go to heaven and you don't serve God with a singleness of heart. I'm not fulfilling my responsibility. I'm deceived and you are too. The Lord demands it and he'll take nothing less. No wonder in Trev 1 he said, I present myself a living sacrifice. The mercy of God demands that. You want to try to get by without that, you spurn the oneness of God and you spurn His mercy and you spurn the death of His Son on the cross. There can be no less. 
But then again, look at the mutual faith and fellowship that Paul desired. There's where strength lies. Look at Romans 1 and verse 12. He said that I may be comforted together with you by mutual faith, both of you and me. The strength of the Lord's church is in the mutual association that we have one for another. It's in the tenderness and the love that we have one for another. He said that we're comforted together by that mutual association. I'm reminded of what the Hebrew writer says in the 10th chapter of that book in verse 24. Let us consider one another provoking unto love and good works. It's our kindness and our consideration one for another that provokes unto love and good works. Paul knew that there was some mutual benefit that they would receive by being together as God's children. And the strength of the church rests on the mutual benefit that we have one in another as the body of Christ. The strength of this congregation will be no greater and our mutual love and our mutual concern for one another. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. And he says in verse 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you so do. And 2 Thessalonians 1, he says in verse 3, We're bound to give thanks to God always, brethren, as is meet, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you towards each other bound. We can't live the Christian life isolated. Oh, it's possible to do so, but it's hard. Turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Romans, and Paul will talk further about that mutual association. Listen to him in Romans 14, verse 7. For none of us liveth unto himself. None of us dieth unto himself. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. The strength of the church depends on the mutual encouragement of brethren. It depends on the mutual concern that there is one for another. Paul goes on to say in this chapter, he's a debtor. He said, as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel unto you that are at Rome also. Why? Because he felt that dead and it weighed on his soul. There's a debt that one takes gladly. There's a debt that we bear because we're interested in other people. We're concerned about them. There's not one of us that can't say I'm a debtor. Someone taught me the gospel of Christ. Think of all the struggle that went on in the lives of those who were pioneers who stood to preach the truth and stand for truth. Think of those in this community who are now dead and gone who sacrificed that the church of our Lord might be here today. Yes, there's a responsibility that's ours. We're debtors. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 when he talks about an element of strength and he says, as much as in me is. To the very limit and the height of his ability, he was ready to serve. In the 11th chapter of the book of Acts in verse 29, you read about the church at Antioch. And every one of them, to the limit and the height of his ability, to extend even beyond, was ready, prepared to give 
for needy brethren. All of them. Not a one left out. Unless we're willing to stretch to the limit and the height of our abilities, we're weak. There may be no strength. Only when every member of the body of Christ, because of his mutual love and his mutual affection that he enjoys and that he has, knowing that he's a part of the body, out of that looking at the sacrifice of our Lord when he died in his place on the cross, stretching to the height, to the limit, just as far as he can go, and his work, in his time, in his money, and whatever it might be. Because Christian service is first and is why will the church be what it ought to be. That was the attitude of Paul. That was the attitude of these brethren at Rome. They were concerned about other people. No wonder Paul wrote and encouraged in Romans 16 and verse 16, Salute one another with a holy kiss, churches of Christ. Salute you. And finally, the church of our Lord is no stronger than the gospel that's proclaimed in the pulpit. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth in you first and also the Greek. There, my friend, is God's only power. There is no other. And the power of the church of our Lord is as strong as we're ready, as strong as we're willing to serve. And as strong as we'll stand for the truth, we've got to stand. But it's not enough for the gospel to be preached. You know, there are two sides to every sermon. There's a side of preaching, and there's a side of hearing. The truth can be preached and preached and preached. And if we don't listen, it avails absolutely nothing. It's only when we receive with meekness the engrafted word, James 1.21. It's only when we receive it with all readiness of mind. And then we search the Scriptures, Acts 17, verse 11, ready to take it and put it in our lives that there will ever be any real strength. I'll never be any stronger Christian than I listen to God's Word. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, when you received it, you received it not as it was the word of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in you that believe. Paul said, I'm ready. I'm ready. As much as in me is to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Are we really ready? Titus 3.1 says, Be ready unto every good work. Readiness denotes an attitude of mind, a predisposition of heart. That we stand ready to take God's book and live it daily, walk it in our lives. The church of my Lord today will never be any stronger than we're ready to do that. Then we're ready to take God's book and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, in Romans chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, Paul points out that Christ fulfilled the passages that were found in the Old Testament. 
and that He suffered for you, that He died in your place on the cross, but that God did not leave Him in the grave. He came forth, resurrected from the dead. Why not allow the goodness of God, Romans chapter 2 and verse 3, cause you this morning to say, I want to turn my back on sin. I want to serve God. I'm going to obey His gospel. I'm going to submit unto His will. Jesus said, He that believeth in his baptized shall be saved. Won't you do that now while together we stand and sing?